This podcast is for the strange and unusual. Welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. There is the second plane, another passenger plane, hitting the World Trade Center. These pictures are frightening indeed. These are just minutes between each other. So naturally, you will guess and you will speculate and perhaps ask the question, if some type of navigating equipment is awry, that two commuter planes would run into the World Trade Centers at the same time. I saw so much suffering on that force to the, to the degree where it's just, it's just something that I, I don't want to share with anyone. I, I'm just kind of been keeping it to myself. It's, it's a secret that you carry with you. It's, and, and it becomes a burden because you can't really share it with a lot of people out there. All right, Todd, hang on. We're going to continue our conversation. Leon has something to, to get, jump in here with. Yes, I'm checking the wires even as we speak. The Associated Press is, is reporting right now that the FBI in Washington is investigating reports that these two plane crashes are the result of foul play. There is a report here by the Associated Press of a possible plane hijacking. Some of my co-workers had families, they had little kids, and they died and I didn't, so why? Why, why am I special? Why, why was I spared? Why didn't they make it? Why, was, why did I make it? Was it God? Was it faith? Is it because we have something to do? Was it because we were shielded by the elevator machinery? It just makes you go crazy. You go crazy asking yourself why, why, why? Take two. Take two and two, one. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! Just before 8.30, I got a phone call and it was Dave. And he said that he just wanted to go and get some coffee and he asked me if I wanted to meet him. And um, I, I said that I was just about to go into, the meet, into a meeting and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I said, I love you and talk to you later. And that was the last time I, I ever spoke to him. Oh, Lacey, it's been a week. Yeah, I'm already drinking my drink. <laughs> yeah, I don't Okay, so this drink, it looks like frozen blood. What are you doing to me? <laughs> this drink is called Lie Tanya. <laughs> It's the perfect name. Tell me more. All I knew about this episode, because you researched it, is that uh, someone named Tanya is lying about being a 9-11 survivor. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we'll get into that shortly. But first, tell me why does it look like blood? It looks like blood because it has two shots of uh, 100% cranberry juice. Ooh. Not cocktail, uh, because it also has two shots of cream soda. Ah. And one shot of bourbon. Okay, so that'll help me with my gout, but give me more diabetes. Got it. Yeah, so everything balances out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just gotta keep my diseases in the right places. Exactly. Uh, so I'm happy that it's red, because uh, I think that red is like a color of shame and embarrassment, and she should be ashamed. Uh, there are also no garnishes, because she didn't earn any. <laughs> Love that reasoning. All right, well, should we have a drink of the lie, Tanya? Yes. Cheers. Cheers. God, 
your drinks are good. Thank you. Uh, a tip is that you can make this a 9-11 faker mocktail by withholding the bourbon, and it's still really good with just cream soda and cranberry juice. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks. I like it. Simple. I tried to add bitters because I think bitters usually make everything better, but in this case, they didn't. If they don't need it, it kind of makes it weird. So just... Well, we can be bitter about the story. <laughs> yeah, we'll <laughs> add our bitterness. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we did mention that this episode is going to be about September 11th, so I do want to put a little bit of a disclaimer at this top of the episode. Sure. So in this episode, we discuss the events of September 11th, 2001. There are brief but graphic descriptions of the events inside and outside the World Trade Center on that terrible morning. Listener discretion is advised, and if you do need support, please contact the Crisis Center in your area. I know, professional, right? Yeah, I actually good disclaimer. It up. <laughs> All right, so this is the story of Tanya Head. All right, uh, I, I know only what I've stated. All right, so I'm just going to kind of begin with my intro. So in the summer of 2007 in New York City, under the swelter of the eastern United States, a member of the New York Times is going down a list of names. There are thousands, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, first responders, office workers, and news reporters, the list goes on. Utter the words September 11th and anyone alive will tell you exactly where he or she was on that terrible morning. In New York City, it hasn't quite ended. Ground Zero is still undergoing a horrific and never-ending cleanup, mirrored only by the ongoing war on terror in the Middle East. But this story won't be about the New Yorkers. It will be a story about survivors. They are just as many to choose from as there are tragedies. There's a group of firemen found huddled with office workers on the only surviving stairwell. There are those who hid in trucks and cars through the blackout clouds of debris which suffocated the once lively streets. Then there's Tanya Head. Her story is a thread laced through the airways since the first reports came out. An employee of a Merrill Lynch think tank in the South Tower, her fiancé worked in the North. Her story of horror echoed those of the other survivors. The sudden impact of the first plant to the north, the heat of the explosions, the confusion and terror, and the realization it was not over. There's another plane coming. She turned just in time to see a glimpse. The details vary from there depending on who you ask and who she told. In the end, and against all odds, Tanya survived the worst tragedy in American history. She went to work on September 11, 2001 as a corporate analyst, Harvard and Stanford uh, University alum, and bride-to-be. She woke up six days later and everything was different. Her fiancé was lost, her office amongst the mountain of concrete, steel, and dead, and the skyline of New York changed forever. Following the tragedy, she went to help the World Trade Center Survivors Network support group to which she became president. She befriended other survivors, met with the families of the lost, and gave tours of Ground Zero and occasionally spoke with magazines, newspapers, and other members of the media. It was the perfect story for the six-year anniversary, a woman who lost everything, a woman who overcame her own loss and tragedy and reached out to others. It was a story, six years in the making, which would completely unravel in the weeks to come. Ooh, yes! Yeah! Oh man, I, like, the idea of this just, like, totally enraged and disgusted me. Like, the idea of this, that someone would (sighs) do what I think we're going to get into discovering she seems to have done. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm definitely going to have all, there are going to be a few things that I know are going to enrage you more than others. But don't worry, we'll get to that. Good news is we have alcohol. Good. All right. Uh, We'll keep moving through it. So, uh, before we move on, I want to ask, where were you on 9-11? Yeah, I was in ninth grade. 
at my high school in Texas. And I remember being in advertising class like early in the morning because I think there was something that happened like before that maybe. Um, Like there were inklings of it in advertising class and I got into English class and like everyone was watching it. Yeah. So you were on a... Mountain time, central time? Central time. Okay, so it would be later in the day for you than it was for me. Yeah, I think something happened like early on in the morning. Like, I don't know, maybe that was like, I'm confusing the uh, Pentagon plane crash as well. But like, I remember being in um, advertising class for that. And then I was in English class in the afternoon for the um, actual, as it was happening. And I remember everyone's parents were picking them up later on in the day after it had happened. And I was like, oh, well, my mom like is reasonable. And like, she probably like knows that even though this happened, like it won't affect me in any way. Like we're in Mm -hmm. Texas. Uh, A lot of people, we had an air force base in our town. So a lot of people were afraid because they were like, maybe we're a target because we have an air force base. Yeah. yeah. And so I understood that, but I was like, probably, I mean, no one cares about our little Texas town. So I was, (laughs) I was like, it's probably fine. And I, it's not like Houston or Dallas. Right. Exactly. (laughs) To my shock, my mom picks me up and I was like, what? I mean, wow. Like I was like, this is really serious. Mm -hmm. And she was like, uh, you've been really sick lately. And I just thought you could use the day off from school. (laughs) I think everyone just wanted to be with their families that day. It was a pragmatic thing but it was also like well we did get to spend time with each other I have to honestly say like as a ninth grader uh it didn't hit me I've always been Mm -hmm. a pretty irreverent person and used irony really heavily and was just kind of mad that like I couldn't watch friends in the Simpsons in the afternoon like I was used to (laughs) you don't strike me at all as a sarcastic person yeah I know that'll come as a big shock to you and our listeners so you were at school when the attacks happened how did the student body find out I believe there was an announcement. I don't think, like, I think we watched some of the news, but I don't remember watching the, like, actual footage of it. I remember it being on at home afterwards, and my parents being like, we're not going to watch, like, people coming out of the buildings or anything. Yeah, every channel, I remember, was just coverage. Uh, You, most channels were just, like, live streaming whatever was on CNN, and then Every now and then you would get one that was streaming everything off CNN, but would have like a little ticker at the bottom that said, we've given permission to CNN to filter through uh, our station or something like that. So it was completely unavoidable. And I like, it's interesting because like just the self-centered, you know, nature of like a person that age, or at least me at that age was like, I just like feel massively inconvenienced by this. And now like as an adult, the seriousness and the way that our country has changed in really like irreparable ways from this, I think uh, definitely it impacts me a lot more emotionally than it did when it happened. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I really remember about September 11th is uh, being in Pacific time because I was in Las Vegas. It was uh, about uh, 5.45, 5.50 in the morning when the first plane struck in Las Vegas. Mm. And usually we woke up for school at 6.30, but around 6 a.m., our house phone started ringing. And everybody in the house ignored, like, the first ring, and then we ignored the second one. By, like, the fourth time this person called, I was like, who the fuck is this? What the hell do you want? I am trying to sleep. And finally, my mom answered the phone, and our vents from my bedroom and her bedroom were connected. So I couldn't hear what she was saying, but I could hear that she had picked up the phone and she was mumbling to someone on it. Okay. So I figured, you know, I'm up now. I'm a teenager who has a TV in her bedroom, so... I'll just watch TV for half an hour. Oh, God. Like you do. So I turned on the TV, and it was on a local station, uh, because I'd probably been watching this on a local station before I went to bed. So the news was on when I turned on the TV, and I saw the reports were saying that one of the towers was hit, and then I saw an explosion. 
And sorry, interrupting. So I was in advertising class for the first hit and because there was time in between, I think. Yeah, there was exactly 17 minutes between. Okay, yeah. So I think it like we shifted from one class to another in that time. And like as everything unraveled, I was in the next. I was just like, how am I, how confused am I? But no, I remember yeah, this yeah, more clearly yeah, than I thought. The first one struck just before nine and the other one was after nine on Eastern Standard Time. So that would have been around the time classes were changing. That makes sense. Okay, thank you for validating yeah. that. Go on. Yeah, so I remember watching the experience explosion because before they were saying like no one had any footage of it so when i saw the explosion i was thinking oh so they have footage of it now mm. what i didn't realize is that i saw the second plane striking oh my god because it was the shot where you're looking at the north tower and the south towers behind it and all you do is see like that explosion behind it oh yeah so i couldn't even tell what was happening it wasn't until like i was like a few minutes later, or even downstairs, like I was really processing. It's like, oh no, they've both been hit. So wow. I remember uh, we watched, uh, we kind of like got into our uniforms. We're like watching the news. And uh, before I went to school, the Pentagon had already been hit. And one of the towers had already collapsed, which was the South Tower, which was the second one that was hit. But because of where it was hit, it was, um, it collapsed first because it was more center mass. And I remember going to my email because back in those days, I think we still had a DSL internet connection at the time. Wow. And all my friends were so cool. And we were on MSN Messenger. Oh my and God. we emailed each other all the time. <laughs> so I got on my email and I fired off an email to all of my friends. And I was like, if you guys aren't up and you don't know what's going on, this is what happened. One of the towers has already collapsed. This is what's happening. And one of my friends later said that she got a few emails about something happening, but at first she thought it was a practical joke. But when she got the email from me, even though I joke around a lot, she knew that was something I wouldn't joke about. Wow. Uh, now that you say that, you are exactly the type of person who would sit down and write, like, a serious email to your friends before school <laughs> when, like, a terrorist attack happens. But, like, it strikes me as so meaningful that that's, like, how, like, at least one person actually found out about yeah. what was going on. Well, it turned out the phone calls were coming from my father because he was in New Orleans for a conference and he was already awake when the attacks happened. Sure. So he was calling us to let us know what was happening. And he actually ended up being stranded in New Orleans for about a week after after because every plane in the country was grounded. That's right. Yeah. Strange times. I, I went to school for like the first half of the day and I just remember being like, are we just like going to school and like doing this? Like nothing happened? Because it wasn't the middle of the day for me like it was for you. I'd already spent like the first hour and a half of my morning yeah. absorbed in this. Yeah. No, I like woke up and had a normal morning and then went to advertising class. The Pentagon was hit. Went to English class. The towers were each hit. And then like, uh, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. I just remember being at school and like, I remember like being in PE and I was like, we're really doing this. Like, we're really just like going to like do our laps like nothing happened. But like, good good on you for having a sense of like scale and gravity because you were, I don't know, younger than me at that time. And I was like, what? is going on? Why is everyone so upset? Shit happens all the time to people. There's like yeah. people dying everywhere all the time. Like yeah. that's, you know, my perspective. Well, I was then. 13 at the time and my second class was uh, a science class and I remember writing the date on my paper and thinking this date is going to be important. Like wow. from here on in. And I actually remember thinking, I wonder if I should save this uh, class assignment just for the analogs of history. That's crazy. And then I realized, you know, I'm not even paying attention. Everybody's talking about it. So I was like, fuck this. I'm just going home. Yeah. There's, it was not a productive day, I'm sure, for anybody yeah. after that. Wait, well, here's something kind of funny. Hmm. I was in private school and um, this cheapskate private school, instead of letting you use a phone in the office to call your parents, they had a payphone. 
<laughs> so I went to the payphone to call my mom, but there was my brother and he'd already called her. So I was like, well, shit, we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows exactly where they were on September 11th, if you're crazy. old enough to remember, assuming you didn't get amnesia. It's weird to me that there are people who, like, won't know, like, how airports were, like, before this. Like, they only know from <laughs> yeah, movies. Yeah, So, <clears throat> now I know where you were on September 11th. And where you were. According to Tanya Head, she was in the South Tower, also known as World Trade Center 2, on the 78th floor. In the weeks following the events of September 11th, a number of networks began congregating in person and online. And also at this time, this was when message boards were still pretty new. So Tanya actually went ahead onto Yahoo Groups. Oh my gosh. And she created a group. Either she created a group or she joined it. In some stories, she created it. In some stories, she joined it and then later became like kind of the administrator of it. Okay. So there was an online survivors network that started up and people were just posting their stories. It was mostly survivors about what they went through, what they specifically experienced when they were inside the towers, how they got out, and just everything about those days. That sounds largely therapeutic, kind of people helping each other process. Yeah, it was really a beautiful thing. And Tanya, over time, started, you know, like, reaching out to people, being like, I'm so sorry, I'm praying for you, really just, like, reaching out and supporting these people one-on-one. Okay. You just gave me the greatest eye of suspicion. <laughs> I'm like, someone is doing something seemingly nice for no reason we can think of other than that they're a great person. I'm immediately <laughs> suspicious. I also kind of know how that, you know, turns out. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, she's not a good person. But she starts off as a good person, sort of. It makes me think of um, a recent episode of My Favorite Murder where they were talking about this guy who, like, always took everyone's children on camping trips. Oh, yeah. That was their episode that just came out. Yeah, and they were like... Like, it's, it's fine. He's, like, a great guy. Look at him helping with the kids for no reason other than he wants to. And yeah. it's like, oh, he's actually a predator. That's why. Well, the fact that the story got completely lost because the Manson family murders were happening. Yeah, I know. That yeah. was, like, an amazing foil in that story. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. that's just what it reminded me of. Like, mm, I don't know. Sometimes when people seem too good to be true. Like, the way this story with Tanya kind of strikes me is it kind of seemed... So in uh, the documentary, The Woman Who Wasn't There, which I highly recommend, there's a woman who speaks at the end about how we all kind of wanted a piece of 9-11 because it all touched us in in a way. And you'd always see people, like, exaggerating. It's like, oh, well, my dad was in New York. Like, he wasn't in the towers, but, like, he was there that day. My cousin was there three weeks before it happened. Right? Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, I mean, everybody kind of, like, wanted a piece of it. So it was even more tangible than it was. And it sounds like at first that's kind of, like, what Tanya was doing is she was just reaching out to the survivors in this way. And the way I kind of think about it in a really twisted way, it's almost like she was a 9-11 fangirl. And she wanted to be a part of it. And then she ended up writing like her own like 9-11 fan fiction that just went way too far. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I think that seems like a useful metaphor and also horrible. <laughs> it's, the, it's the worst fan fiction in history. Oh no, Jesus. So uh, one of the survivors, uh, Brendan, said that she reached out to him shortly after he shared his own story and they emailed back and forth. There were other people in the network. Everyone kind of knew who she was, but everybody knew Tanya was there. Like it was kind of implied, but she didn't really talk about it. And then one day she just unloaded. Her silence ended in 2004. In a multiple page post, Tanya divulged the fullness of her tale. It began with a cab ride she'd never take. As the yellow taxi rolled up to the curb, Tanya was both startled and angered when a man rushed in front of her. Before she could react, the man had opened the cab door and began climbing inside. She yelled. He shoved his business card into her hand. As quickly as it began, it was over. 
Tanya watched from the curb of the World Trade Center Plaza as the cab rolled away into the evening Manhattan Road. His name was Dave. He worked in the North Tower. In their next encounter, Tanya confronted him and Dave apologized. The encounter evolved into a conversation, and not long after, the pair began a whirlwind relationship. She barely known him a few weeks, or was it months, when he proposed marriage. Wait, so, hang on. Her survivor story starts with her meeting her man who, so did he die in, he died in the thing, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, he in died theory. in the North Tower, and <sighs> she was in the South Tower. Okay. Don't worry, it gets worse. Alright, keep going. So Tanya accepted. Her future was interrupted when an ordinary Tuesday morning twisted into a nightmarish hellscape. American Airlines Flight 11 struck the upper portion of the North Tower, and Tanya began counting. Dave's floor, she realized, was affected. Seventeen minutes ticked by. People evacuated the office. Others watched in horror from the South Tower vantage point. Then came the screaming. There's another plane coming. Tanya hadn't had time to digest the words before the air was sucked out of the room. The room was black with smoke, but what she could see was illuminated by blistering flames ignited by the fuel. Her ears were filled with the agonized cries of the dying set against the distant sirens of the first responders. Windows and walls were obliterated, and the incoming rush of air swirled fresh ash against her eyes and filled her throat. Her clothes caught fire, and she went to the ground. And then a miracle. Someone took a cloth and batted the flames off her back and arm. The plane struck far beneath her feet. United Airlines 175 struck near the center mass of the South Tower, the impact decimating stairwells and disabled all elevator service, straining many on the floors above. Now, approximately 20,000 people escaped the World Trade Center on September 11th. In the South Tower, only 19 people survived above the point of impact. Oh my god. This means if Tanya's story was true, she would have been one of the 19. Hmm, alright. It sounded like m- that would like be very difficult to survive if it's cutting off all pathways out of the building in general. Yeah, it was uh, because of how it struck. Because um, if you look at the North Tower, it was kind of in the center of the floor. Unfortunately, we will have pictures online. Everybody knows these pictures. But on the South Tower, it was much lower, and it was more like at the corner of the building. Okay. So because of how it struck the building, it just took out all those exterior uh, exterior structures. Where in the North Tower, because it was higher up, people were able to... There were more people beneath the impact point that were able to get down. And that's okay. why the South Tower buckled first, because, I mean, you lost three or four corners. Sure. Okay. Thanks for the explanation. Yeah. Um, Actually, one of the things that I heard in one of the September 11th documentaries is even though the jet fuel was really hot and it ignited the fire, jet fuel burns very quickly. But because these were offices and you have carpet and paper Mm. and files and all these flammable office materials. That's what fueled it. That's why it got so hot and it kept burning. Mm. So Tanya's body screamed in agony. Between the fire and debris, her right arm was barely attached to her body. She was losing blood. She was losing oxygen. She was running out of time. It was a firefighter who gathered her at the end. She made her way to the ground, cradled in his arms, when the morning was broken by another terrifying noise. There was a whine of twisting and melting metal and the rush of an avalanche. Before she could ask, her rescuer threw her beneath the fire truck in an instant just before the plume of smoke, ash, and debris of her former office rained hell around them. From the New York Times article, A 9-11 Survivor Tale, The Pieces Just Don't Fit, by David W. Dunlap and Serge F. Kovesky, Tanya was quoted as saying, What I witnessed there I will never forget. It was a lot of death and destruction, but I also saw hope. 
These words were uttered in 2006 at a memorial event at the Baruch College. Uh, so there were stories of survival, but there weren't any that were as potent as Tanya's. That and is, it is very dramatic. It the, the whole fiancé thing, the being one of the 19, the being thrown under the fire truck. Yeah, yeah, but, uh... If you ask uh, Brennan Chellis, who was the guy who was emailing her before, and as he said in the documentary, The Woman Who Wasn't There, her story was just head and shoulders above anything else anybody had been through. It was almost like movie screen perfect. Because, hmm. like you said, you have the fiancé who was in the North Tower. She barely survived the collapse of the South Tower. And uh, she remembered someone screaming, another plane is coming right before the plane hit. Yeah. But all of her details were correct. And later on, people were saying, it's like, well, yeah, she was reading the message boards of survivors. Right, yeah. It was very easy to get that information at yeah. that time. If she were a writer, she did very thorough research. For real. So her story just blew everyone out of the water. So it started going around different survivors' networks. Now, Brendan was also in a survivor network in New York City. This one was actually put together by a, name, by a guy named uh, Jerry Bogaz. Bogaz? X? Try saying it. Uh, Jerry Bogaz. B-O-G-A-C-Z. Yeah. Uh, I'd have no idea. Jerry. 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 With a G. Another Jerry with a G. Oh my god, this is, might be a theme with me. Oh, we should note Tanya is spelled T-A-N-I-A, not like any Tanya other Harding. Tanya. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Tanya. Or lie, Tanya. Yeah, this one's the lie, Tanya. The other one is a my different bad. lie. bad. Maybe one day I'll do a Tanya Harding episode. Oh man, that would be fun. That'd be a lot of fun to do. <laughs> um, so... Jerry had started his own network, and he describes it as he just kind of like started with his co-workers. So other people that had survived the tower collapse, he was like, you know, you try talking to people at home, you try talking to your friends, and they don't really understand because they weren't in it. Uh, but there's another survivor, Elia, who says that she went from how did I survive, or why did I survive, to why did I have to survive. Mm. So Jerry started this network just amongst his co-workers because he's like, at least we can talk to each other because we've been through it together. And then just by word of mouth, people in New York started coming together to these meetings. So he was told, because he was the kind of unofficial head of this group, about Tanya's story. So he reached out to her, and they started emailing back and forth. She he read her story, she gave uh, he gave her his story, and after a little bit of coaxing in 2004, Tanya finally, after two months of emailing, went to the states. Tanya finally went to the states. She finally went to the United States of America. What? Yeah, she was overseas at this time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really see what her excuse was, and, like, I did a lot of research, but I would imagine that since she's someone, uh, since she is actually of a foreign uh, heritage initially, if she was involved in the September 11th attacks and she had come to take a job in the United States and then this happened, I could see someone just wanting to go home afterward. Okay, that makes sense. I can understand that. I just didn't understand where she was coming. Okay, cool. Yeah, but she was uh, traveling from Europe to the United States okay. after two months of emailing with Jerry. From the documentary, The Woman Who Wasn't There, Survivor Elia Zdeno, she describes Tanya as strong and supportive. She became a board member of the World Trade Center Survivors Network, and she officially merged her online support group with that of the network. So she was like, you know, I have these people that need a place to be uh, that don't know about your network. Let's just put them all together. That makes sense. So yeah, it actually started off as 
a good thing. But I can see that, that being helpful. She's lying. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie and her actually became really good friends, and her best friend was actually another survivor, another survivor named Linda Gormley. And these two were inseparable. Now, Marion Fontana, who is a September 11th widow, and she's actually the current president of the 9-11 Widows and Victims Family Association, credits Tanya with making the network possible. So even though it was kind of Jerry's brainchild, Tanya was the one who really, like, pushed for things to get done with the survivors. Okay. Um, actually, according to Alice Greenwald, who's the current president and chief executive officer of the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, Tanya, quote, advocated for the survivors network. So when people were bringing in donations, she found out how to distribute them. When the survivors wanted to have, like, their own day at Ground Zero without the rest of the public, Tanya arranged that, and they just said that there didn't seem to be anything that could knock her down. She um, was always looking for ways to support the group. She would talk to other members. She would go out and hold these fundraisers. She did walking tours as a volunteer with Linda and other survivors. And she was also bilingual. She also spoke Spanish fluently. So during the walking tours, if there were Spanish speakers present, she would give them the details in fluent Spanish. Mm. So then things kind of begin to turn a little bit. So one of the things everybody knows right away is she has this horrific scar on her right forearm. Now where it's located is kind of on the back of her right forearm near her elbow. Okay. And it is a deep grotesque cut. And this she says is when the debris struck her in the tower. And that's why her arm was hanging on by a thread. and was one of the reasons why she had to spend six days in the hospital. But Jerry noticed she didn't seem to have any burns. Now, Tanya said that her clothes were on fire and her arm was on fire. And then this mysterious stranger came out of somewhere and put out the flames. You would think there would be burned scar tissue. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I actually was hit by an exploding lighter one time. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. Yeah, that's just my life. Um, no, I was actually at a, a bonfire party thing, and you know, people get drunk and they get stupid, and someone threw a lighter into the fire. Ugh. And when it exploded, it flew out and hit my arm. So I actually have, like, it's one of these arms. I don't know. I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt right now. <laughs> one of your many arms. <laughs> you know, because I'm Vishnu. <laughs> Um, but I actually have a permanent scar from where the lighter hit me. And it's just like a little spattering of where the lighter fluid or the flaming fluid struck my skin. But it's forever there. Yeah, but even something that small has left a permanent mark. And if her arm and her back were on fire, you would think there would be some evidence of that. Yes. So that was one of the first things that kind of struck Jerry as a little odd. Okay, yeah, understandable. There were little inconsistencies in her story, but he was also like, you know what, she's been through a terrible thing, and I'm not gonna question her on it, because he was like, no, I shouldn't question her on it, but then he'd have another voice in the back of his head that said, but why are you questioning it? Mm. What's there that's causing this? So then, by 2006, Tanya entered therapy. This is gonna be the part you're gonna love. All right. So Tanya, so at this point in time, she's acting as a board member of the World Trade Center Survivors Network, and the therapy that she was partaking in is called flooding. Mm-hmm. Lacey, can you tell us what flooding is? Uh, I can't tell you that as a modality of therapy. I can tell you that as a part of exposure therapy for anxiety and post-traumatic stress. Um, it's usually more generalized or fears uh, than post-traumatic, but 
what I understand of flooding is that it's a stage in helping you learn that your anxiety and fear aren't going to kill you and that the thing that you're afraid of, uh, you don't necessarily have to be afraid of. So it's you have to expose yourself to the thing that creates the reaction in you for a certain period of time. So your system gets really activated and your heart beats fast and you feel like you might die. And then over time, your body learns to calm itself down. You do this enough times and it kind of it extincts the feeling of the threat or at least your heightened response to it. Perfect. Okay, cool. So uh, the way Tanya has exposed herself to this is she records her voice telling the full story of what happened. And then she plays it to relive the story. And that's how she's exposing herself to it. Yeah, I can see that as a useful technique for somebody who's undergone a trauma to kind of understand their own narrative of it. Here's the part that's going to piss you off. She asks her friend Linda to sit in with her while she's flooding. Because... She needed this extra person, a 9-11 supporter, with her while she was going through flooding because she didn't think she could do it by herself. Mm. How do you feel about that? I feel like she should have sought the help of a trained therapist to uh, supervise her flooding and be there to hold that space since that's what they're trained to do and also so she wouldn't re-traumatize another survivor. So one of the things that you're actually going to learn about Tanya is you really can't trust a damn thing she says. So this could be something as simple as she looked up what flooding is after like a couple Google searches yeah. and decided this is the thing I'm going to do. So she may not have actually seen a real therapist. Which feels very like um, something who writes 9-11 fanfic. <laughs> like somebody who writes 9-11 fanfiction would do. Like I'm going to record my own story and listen to it over and over because I'm a hopeless narcissist perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It's very unbranded for her. Alright, alright. Oh, God, I feel bad for uh, Linda. So, Linda, being a wonderful friend, agrees to do this. Oh my god, so she, like, is knows that she will probably be triggered by this, but that she's willing to, like, go through it for her friend, Tanya, because Tanya might need her. Yeah, so oh. she's listening to this recorded story over and over again of Tanya's full encounter start to finish on September 11th, and she describes in the documentary, The Woman Who Wasn't There, how Tanya would start crying, how she'd be running across the room, and how she'd be collapsing and all these things and there were real tears sure but the problem is it was starting to affect linda yeah, yeah obviously of course <laughs> and like for for what it's worth i think that like if this was someone who'd been through something like this and needed to hear their own story like i have no judgment on like somatic expression of that fear like running around right. the room or what like that makes sense and i can see that being a legitimate expression of anxiety or processing for someone who's been through something <laughs> I just don't understand why you need an audience. Yeah. Why you need to use the buddy system on this. And, like, if you do need an audience, like, a therapist. Like, that's that's their job is to, like, help you through your traumatic shit. I mean, honestly, if I'd been through something this traumatic, but you had not been in it, I would not want you to be there if I were partaking in this exercise because it's like, I've already experienced something horrible that's fucking with me. I don't want it to start fucking with you. Yeah. So there's something uh, beneath all of the, like, on-the-surface do-goodery and, like, trying to help with these groups. There's something really sinister, apart from even just the lying part of it, because it's, it's like, trying to hurt other people who've actually been through something like this. Now you're going to get really pissed. Oh, great. So Linda is starting to suffer herself, and she said she got to the point where she was having nightmares about September 11th every night, and she said there actually came a point in time where she didn't go to bed 
and not have a building fall on her. Oh my god. That's a double negative. I'm sorry about that. I, I guess. It's actually a lot of negatives. So yeah, I mean it's it's all negative. Really. Let's forget the grammar rules. So it's just negative across the board. So finally Tanya goes to or Linda goes to Tanya and she says, I'm sorry. I can't do this anymore because this isn't good for me. Can Do we have any estimate of how many times she had to listen to this fucking story? We don't. However, there is a book called The Woman Who Wasn't There, The True Story of an Incredible Deception. But And this book is by Robin Baby Fisher and Angela J. Guillermo Jr. Um, and in this book, it actually goes more into detail about these events. Okay. So they may have more of an estimate, but it sounds like it went on for weeks. Oh my god. So, I mean, just imagine at least two weeks of that. That's at least 14 tellings if you're doing it with her every night like she says she was. Uh, But when Linda went to Tanya and said, I can't do this anymore, that's when their friendship buckled. And from that book I just mentioned, this is an actual excerpt. You're so selfish, Tanya said, speaking through gritted teeth. All you ever think about is yourself. Do you know no one in the group likes you because of that? No one likes you, Linda. They think you're a less hot version of me. (laughs) And she ended it with, everyone in the group talks behind your back. Oh my god. And Linda's just this genuine, loving, like, outreach person. She She, showed up for Tanya to listen to this story over and over. She she thrives on being a people person. And you're going to a people person and being like, you know, nobody likes you. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm pissed. On top of this, Tanya's telling her how Tanya's suffering is so much worse than Linda's. It's like, oh yeah, you survived 9-11, but I lost my fiancé, and I had this happen, and I had that happen. And it's just a big bucket of what the fuck. It's really the pot calling the kettle black, like Tanya telling Linda, like, you only care about yourself, and everything's just about you. It's like, nah, bitch, look in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, really. this is the part that it always pisses me off. Like, there are things in this story that are already problematic, at least. This is the part where I get enraged. God. Because she's re-victimizing a survivor of 9-11. Oh, she's just preying on this woman's, like, good heart. <sighs> okay, alright. Alright. Keep going. So in 2011, elections were held for the chairman of the board. As its founder, Cherry had been re-elected consistently from the beginning. In 2007, the board's taste in leadership had greatly soured. Tanya mentioned that there were concerns regarding his decisions, and the complaints they began slowly, but soon they were mounting. And right before the vote, Tanya asked him if he attended on, or if he intended on attending. Jerry says, you know, of course, of course I plan on attending the vote. To which she replies, do you really want to be there? Are you, are you sure? And the way Jerry describes it is he could tell that she was kind of subtly telling him, you're not going to be reelected and you really shouldn't be there. Oh my god. So now she's like intimidating her political opponents? In the Survivors Network. In the 9-11 Survivors Network. This is- So many layers of bullshit. God. One of the things Jerry actually talks about in several documentaries is he could tell that at first she was probably trying to go at him like subtly, like, you know, we're not really sure about your leadership, like maybe thinking she could bully him out. Mm. But when he wasn't bullied out, 
she went around the group, manipulating all the members individually, just like stirring up discord. Before he knew it, the election came. He did show up, but he lost. She had whipped that vote, man. Holy shit. And he actually said that when he got to the bus stop, like he was like, you know, I should have been angry. I should have felt so many things, but he was like, I was just bewildered. Like these were people that I was friends with and I thought that we'd had a connection. And even though he's not the most charismatic person on the planet, he's like, I don't know how I could have alienated all these people that I considered friends and family for these past several years. So I've already armchair diagnosed her a narcissist. I'm, it's late in the game, but I, better late than never. She's clearly a sociopath. Like, if nothing else, like, obviously the lying, the not having a conscience about that, but, and like, the tree traumatizing her friend. But this last thing, this, like, her going around to different members of the group, like, speaks to having a level of, uh, persuasiveness or charisma or like that certain uh, je ne sais quoi that sociopaths frequently have. So she does have a little Ted Bunty in her. Yeah, it sounds like she <laughs> she just might. <laughs> that needs to be a t-shirt. Do you have a little Ted Bundy in you? Oh god, it does. Check yes, run away. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, Jerry goes onto the Survivors Network and he sees that Tanya is now listed as the president which is a role that hadn't existed the day before. Okay, sure. Yeah, why not? Uh, she should have just appointed herself Empress, honestly. Yeah. But there were questions. Gary questioned her story when they first met. The scar cut a grisly mark across her right forearm to the elbow, but there were no burns. Her answers were at times vague or slightly different from her previous retelling. In 2005, when the heroic tale of Wells Crowther, a civilian who was also known as the man in the red bandana began to circulate... It turned out that this guy, uh, so actually I'm going to talk about Wells for a second because this guy is a true hero. He was just a civilian worker in the South Tower on 9-11 and he always had a red bandana on him. And on September 11th, he was known famously for saving dozens of people. He put his red bandana over his face so he could breathe. He kept going back back for more people to so get people had stories of this wells. guy with the red bandana all these beautiful stories and when they actually found wells body and i think it was march 2002 his body was amongst the group of firefighters and he'd been right alongside them fighting and saving people oh my gosh so it's just it's a tragic beautiful story about just one guy who instead of just going to save himself did everything in his power to save as many people as possible it's like if we're we're on a 9-11 heroism spectrum. He's like at the top and Tanya Head's like at the bottom, clearly. She's beneath the bottom. She's <laughs> in the sewers. She's in the negative range. <laughs> All right. So when the story about Wells started circulating, someone mentioned her because they knew she was in the South Tower. They said, did you hear about the story? Did you know anything? Did you see the guy in the red bandana? And she goes, oh, he was the guy who put out the flames on my back. Because remember, part of her story was, was that, that she, she was, was on, on fire. fire and someone put out the flames and suddenly it's Wells. That's another fucking ballsy ass thing about sociopaths is they like don't think about how see-through that lie is. Like you don't have any burns. It gets worse. <sighs> Keep going. Wells, <laughs> you just hung your head like a child who was told that they're not out of time out yet. <laughs> uh, it's been forever since Tanya has been lying. <laughs> Lacey, face the corner. <laughs> I'm doing you wrong. Oh, Tanya. Tanya's a bitch. Yeah, that's an extra five minutes. 
<laughs> no potty language. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Watch your fucking language, Lacey. I'm gonna try to get my shit together. <laughs> so when the story came out about what happened uh, with Wells, his parents actually started reaching out to all the people that he had saved because they wanted to meet them and they met dozens of survivors this way. So guess who they met? They met Tanya. They met Tanya. She went to their house, told them the story about how he put out the flames on her back. It's just disgusting. Fuck her! Oh my god! And according to Wells' mom, because she was such a good actress, she could. Uh, she said that Tanya didn't say a lot and she felt it was because you could see the pain that she was going through. Like, it felt like she was fighting something. So she figured Tanya wasn't sharing too much because she was, you know, just going through it. It was just trauma. I mean, there's definitely intelligence in knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, but... <sighs> okay, alright. My stories always piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, Jerry was not alone in his questioning of Tanya. Now, there was the story of Dave, which was something that Brendan had always found very suspicious. So he was thinking, does Dave even exist? Yeah, finding anyone that Dave had known or worked with or Dave's family members or friends that could confirm, oh yeah, Dave existed and Tanya was his fiance. So he decided to do a Google search, like we all do. Sure. So he Googles Dave's first and last name. He existed. Dave was a real person. His surname has been redacted from all articles for the privacy of his family. Oh my god. But he was in the North Tower on 9-11, and he did die. So she found someone's real survivor story and attached her fucking self to it? Yeah. Ah! Okay. And, all right. Or someone's not someone else's survivor story, someone else's death. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Someone else's death. You're exactly right. Yeah. F oh my god. And the... Secondary trauma of everyone that knows that person, too. Uh. And according to Brendan, when he saw that Dave existed, at first he, he felt a little bit like an asshole. Because he's like, oh shit, here are all these stories about this guy, Dave, who died in the North Tower on 9-11. I'm like questioning this woman who's clearly gone through something. Oh, But Brendan. then he starts looking more into the stories of Dave. And like there's stories about, you know, where he worked, where he was, about his family. But there's no mention of a fiancé. There's no picture of Tanya with him. Tanya's just missing. That would have been a part of the story, for sure. Yeah. So he starts really questioning because there is no Tanya. And the thing that really bothered him is she had told everyone so, so many times, Dave was my fiancé. We had this whirlwind romance where he stole my cab and then he proposed and we were so excited. But her story actually even evolved a little bit here. She told people that Dave, not long before the attacks, had surprised her with two tickets to Hawaii, and they went to Maui. And while they were in Maui, her parents flew up, and Dave surprised her with an unofficial wedding on the beach. So even though he was actually her husband, it wasn't legal because they never got the wedding license. And then... Her story evolves that she was able to contact a judge in New York City and explain the situation and was posthumously married to Dave. And that is how she became not only a 9-11 survivor, but a 9-11 widow. I need to take a picture of your goddamn face. I'm trying to hold my breath because I feel like if I pass out, then I don't have to hear about this asshole. So if you guys thought Lacey's face was 
just precious in her reaction to the satanic panic and the escalation of all those psychologists. <laughs> I'm so fucking mad right now. I don't even know what to do. Oh my, there are actually tears in your eyes. <laughs> I'm so frustrated. Like, it's, it's horrifying to me that someone would fake going through something like this and then beyond that, like, try to imply that they were married to somebody who died in the attack who... I, yeah, yeah. It's, like, unfathomable. I have this burning feeling from, like, my neck down into the pit of my stomach. Like... Yeah. Ugh, okay. Don't worry. She doesn't stay on top long. Thank God. <laughs> Let's knock this bitch off her pedestal. Now, along the lines of Tanya Lyon, and this is a little story, but it speaks volumes. So there's... Alia again. And she's one of the people that, you know, said Tanya was this pillar of strength. Everybody in the network kind of looked up to her. And actually a lot of people said a lot of people in the network kind of worshipped the ground Tanya walked on because while everyone else was a little bit broken and mourning, Tanya was smiling and trying to be optimistic and all these other things. She's so fucking brave, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things Tanya always talked about was her dog. But every time Elia went to Tanya's apartment, her dog wasn't there. Oh, well, her dog also died in the 9-11 attack. You see, that's another foil to her story. Well, every time they went to the apartment and the dog wasn't present, because Ellie is a dog person, or as she says, because I think she has a Brooklyn accent, she says, I'm a dog person. <laughs> I want to know if she had a dog. <laughs> I thought it was just awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, sure, you want to see the dog. I'm not even a dog person, but if someone says they have a dog, I'm like, I'd like to be introduced to said dog at least. Yes. Yes, so. I would like some fluffy companionship <laughs> at this moment. That, that yes, sounds ideal. <laughs> Every time she asked Tanya where the dog was, she always just said, Oh, Lupe's walking him. Lupe. Of course, Lupe, the dog walker. Obviously. And like over time, like it kind of like became a running joke of that dog must really love Lupe because Lupe's always walking the dog. And finally, she just says to Tanya, Tanya, do you or do you not have a dog? To which Tanya says, of course I have a dog. And that there just speaks volumes about this woman's character. Yeah, like, even confronted with it. Just like, nope, uh, d like, doubling down. Like, obviously I have a dog. Yeah, people like dog people, so obviously I'm a dog person, so obviously I have a dog. Duh. It's just Lupe's walking him. Lupe's always with him. <laughs> Lupe's best. Sounds like it's Lupe's dog. <laughs> Lupe should really take the dog. Well, let's be honest, Lupe and the dog are both imaginary, so... I just hope Lupe and the dog are happy in their imaginary realm together. Oh, God, that's all I want. Yeah. I want to go live with them there. <laughs> So even though she considered Tanya her best friend, Linda also saw inconsistencies. But again, Linda is very much a people person. And every time Tanya would slip up or she would have a freak out or she wouldn't fi uh, finish something, she just always excused it as it's the trauma. And also like trauma. inconsistencies in story, to a certain extent, there can be some of those in traumatic mm -hmm. memory, the way your brain encodes things, uh, remembering more details later on, uh, re-remembering things changes details. So again, like there's a certain amount of leeway in like mm -hmm. processing memory that like, as a person who frequently, and even in the course of this episode has been like, wait, I'm not entirely sure I remember the details of that correctly. Like I, I can, that a little bit of leeway there. The burn thing is problematic, but yeah. But I'm also wondering if, like, this flooding exercise is also a I'm drilling my story into my head. Because mm. I'm listening to it over and over and over again. It's like, oh, yeah, I said this happened next. So we're just 
remember, this is what you said happened next. This is the story you're telling. Get your story straight, Tanya. I think, yeah, I think that's like serves a double purpose. And I honestly doubt she ever even listened to it outside of making Linda sit in that room with her. I, I highly doubt it, too. Mm. <laughs> it, could, it could also, and also that could be an exercise. And obviously I'm a victim because I'm going through this exercise to deal with it. I need you to witness me dealing with it so I'm a more believable survivor and victim of this tragic event. Performative victimhood. Yeah. Ugh. It's, it's just it's just the worst. All right. I agreed. Co-signed. <laughs> so Tanya often, uh, she kind of, she loved and hated the press. Like she spoke to them like kind of on her terms. But in 2006, on uh, that fifth anniversary of the attacks at Ground Zero, as Tanya was leaving, she was swarmed by the media and she suddenly had a terrible panic attack and couldn't be there and was rushed away. Maybe she didn't rehearse enough that day. I don't know. God, yeah, or maybe she just felt like, you know what would give me even more attention than even talking to the media? Not, Not being able to, to. I want to share my story. I want to give my strength. I just can't. Oh, what a brave survivor. Oh, woe is me. And a widow, too. Ugh. So like everyone else, the story of Tanya had captured the fascination of the New York Times. All right, we're getting somewhere. I just saw your eyes light up in the most delicious way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited now. You're like, all right, I'm back in the story. Bring Let's her do down, this. bring her down. <laughs> she was the perfect subject for the six year anniversary story covering the progress of the main survivors. She was easy to find. After all, she was the president of the World Trade Center Survivors Network. So soon began the calls. The initial questions were actually very basic. But then when she was prodded for clarity, she fumbled. And pretty soon she's dodging calls. These could be something simple as, okay, so you said you worked for Merrill Lynch as a part of a think tank. When did you start that job? What was your favorite part of that job? These are things that you can't really answer if you never had said job. Right. I don't think that's what they asked her about. I mean, just as an example. Like harmless details that are just meant to flesh out the story. They're not trying to like call her story into question at this point. They're just trying to like tell her story. Yeah. And so they keep calling her when she starts like dodging calls. That's when they're like something feels weird here. Yeah. The president of the Survivors Network is not getting back to us about this. Yeah, and she's posted this story online. She's done interviews on the Today Show, Good Morning America. You can find, like, her old interviews online where she's talking about it. Oh my god, she, I want to watch some of those now. Oh god, she talks in interviews, and she's always just a... This is what happened. Here's the real thing. Blah, blah, blah. This is my story. And then obviously in 2006, she's at a university talking about what she experienced that day. But suddenly she doesn't want to talk to the New York Times when they ask just a few easy prodding questions that anyone who was there would be able to answer. Yeah. So she starts dodging the calls. So they start calling more and they start calling the Survivors Network. So while this is happening, Tanya is complaining to anyone who will hear about how she's being hounded by the New York Times and she's saying they don't believe me and it's all she talks about around the office and it even gets to the point where she's calling her friends from the Survivors Network like at three in the fucking morning telling them oh they don't believe me and I don't know what to do about this and at one point uh Alia who's working at the Survivors Network when the Times calls she's like just leave her alone she's been through enough leave Tanya but then people are starting to get annoyed with that. They're like, this is all you're fucking talking about. And Tanya's like, if I can just get through the anniversary and then I'll talk to them. 
Which just fucking sucks. She's like, uh, she's appropriating victimhood for herself. Yeah. Like, she's she knows all the words to use. She knows, like, the lingo. And, like, she knows that the anniversary would be particularly tough. Yeah. And so, like, finally people are like, just give us something. And, like, for example, Linda prodded her for the name of the fireman who threw her under the truck. Because Linda's heard all of her stories. Linda had to go through flooding with her. <laughs> So Linda's like, what's the name of the fireman? Uh, another survivor, Lori's asking for just like a small shred of evidence just to give to the Times. What's Dave's last name? What's his middle name? Where was he born? Uh, Tanya claimed that the second time she and Dave met was actually at a business meeting. When was the business meeting? What was it about? Why was Merrill Lynch talking to his firm? Little things like that. And to all this, Tanya's just dodging, 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 dodging. I just can't. My heart is too faint to even um, discuss these details I'm about my, my former husband's employment. I'll feel the faint. God. Oh, God. What a piece of shit. Finally, Lori says to Tanya, why don't you just get a lawyer? These people can't hound you. Like, yeah, there is freedom of the press, but there are also anti-harassment laws. How about this? I'll set you up with a lawyer. You tell a lawyer your story and they'll give you legal advice. And if you want to, I'll even go with you. Who is this, Elia? Uh, this is another survivor named Lori. Okay. So Lori says, uh, let's discover this lawyer. And Tanya actually agrees. So... She goes with her. Tanya meets with this female lawyer and they disappear behind the door. And the only reason I'm saying she was a female lawyer is because I'm going to be using the pronoun she and I don't want anyone to get confused. Tanya disappears behind the door and Lori waits like any good supportive friend. And she assumes, you know, Tanya's just in there telling the story that we've all heard a thousand times. So finally, after a while, the lawyer pokes her head out and she says to Lori, you can come in now. Lori goes into the room and the lawyer sits down and she's like, you know, they, you don't need to speak to the press. You don't owe them anything. And then she starts saying some peculiar things. She said, It didn't matter that she'd only known Dave a few weeks. It didn't matter that she was only in New York for the day. It didn't even matter that she was only visiting the towers. What? No, she worked in the North Tower for a Merrill Lynch type firm or that worked with Merrill Lynch. Something about Merrill Lynch. She definitely worked there. She wasn't only there for a day. That is not what she told everybody. In a handful of breaths, the lawyer shattered and scattered Tanya's house of cards like so many leaves. It was all a lie. Oh, yes. Bless this lady lawyer. And this lawyer's probably thinking, okay, she knows the story. I can say these things in front of her. Like, she isn't realizing that Tanya has told her a completely different story. Than everyone else. And actually, at one point, uh, while the Times is hounding her, Tanya says to Elia, the truth is, I'm a Spanish national, and I'm in the country, I was working in the country illegally, and I'm afraid that the Times is going to find out that I'm here legally and I'll get deported. To which Elia said, well, you know, if you're a survivor of the 9-11 tax and you married an American citizen, they're not going to deport you for that. Mm. Yeah, but the problem is none of it's true. Yeah. <laughs> is she is she actually a Spanish national? Oh, yeah. Okay. We're going to so find out true part. all about Tanya. All right. And it's not like this was like the one truth that she gave to anyone because it was like i might be able to leverage a part of my true story to get me out of this yeah and she was thinking well maybe I, if i say i'll get i could potentially get deported then all these people who have worshipped me are going to rally behind me and they won't let the times touch me yeah i can see that so who is tanya head yeah who does bitch <laughs> who does bitch where you at 
Tanya Estefa Head is a Spanish national. She was born in Barcelona to a prominent wealthy family, which was scandalized in 1992 when her father and brother were involved in a financial scandal, which put both men in prison. Okay. I did not dig further into that because I don't want to get distracted from the fact that she's a lying sack of shit. Sure, but interesting. Okay. So her, apparently, you know, this line runs in the family. Yeah, it sounds like it's been passed down. Yeah. So Tanya was never in need for money, and her childhood friends talked about her lavish stories. She always had boyfriends they never met, and she was always like, Oh, they're so handsome, he loves me so much. I'm Tanya. <laughs> Other friends said that she was just enamored with American culture. She actually attended the University of Barcelona, and then in the year 2000, she began her pursuit of a master's degree by enrolling at E-S-C-A-D-E. Now, I'm going to try to pronounce the name of this university. I'm going to butcher it, so I apologize to everybody in Spain or of Spanish heritage and just the entire world population, so I apologize, and to your eardrums. Escola Superior de Administración de Derecho de Empresas. Uh, empresas. Sure. I get two amig. I'm ig- ignorant about how that's pronounced, so it sounds fine to me. My rudimentary understanding of the Spanish language tells me this probably uh, translates to the School of Superior, uh, the administ- the Superior Administration School of Directors and Enterprises, or Directing Enterprises. Okay. And she was actually in class in Barcelona when the September 11th attacks took place. Because it was that fall when her classes began. She wasn't even on the continent. Oh my god. What is more, like, I guess she's a fan of America, and what is more American than, like, the 9-11 attacks? But, like, fuck you! Yeah, and as far as, like, that giant scar on her arm, which is a real thing... Nobody actually knows how she got it. Like, some of her friends, she said it happened in a car accident. And some people, she's told she fell while riding her horse and the scar was from a corrective surgery. Nobody knows! I'm sure it was something really unglamorous. Like, she, like, accidentally, like, was cut on, like, a door frame that was jutting out and she had to go to the emergency room. Like, I'm sure it was nothing. Yeah. I'm sure it was, like, some stupid mistake story and she's made it into this romanticized. I hate her. Yeah, I'm gonna show you one of my ugly scars. Because I'm that kind of person. So you see? Mm Mm-hmm. So I have a really deep scar on uh, my forearm near my elbow. It's not very long. It's about maybe an inch and a half, two inches. But it is very prominent. And you can see it from across the room. Yeah, it stands out. Um, As many of you know, I have a history with uh, depression and anxiety. And I remember when I went to talk to my doctor about my medication, she noticed the scar. And because it's so deep, she asked if it was um, a self-harm scar. That makes sense. To which I told her the embarrassing truth. What was it? When I was a kid, I ran through a rose bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was some shit like that with Tanya. Yeah, I was running across the front yard to get into the house, and I decided that I was going to leap through the bushes like some sort of like action hero because there was like a slight gap. And as I was executing this marvelous move, my arm got clawed by the bush. Uh, yeah, I can see that happening. I mean, I can make up a cool story for this scar. Right. But... Oh, see, this scar right here. Mm-hmm. Actually, my childhood friend and I, we went a step further from doing uh, Blood Brothers, Blood Sisters. And we actually cut a tiny piece of skin off and tried to graft it onto each other. How we... we did glue and, sticks? Uh, so that's a lie. I had a mole removed. <laughs> 
But see, we can all make up stories about how we got our scars. Yeah, I mean, like, I have a, a scar in my neck. I can't. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. It's a little white spot, and I like to tell people it was a lazy vampire. Ooh, nice. But the truth is, I also had a mole removed. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I did, uh, in, like, college, you have to, I, I, any other group, I guess, but I remember this in college, you have to, like, give, like, an interesting fact about yourself, like, a lot of the time in, like, mm-hmm. a new class or a new group or whatever, and, um, I, I got tired of telling the truth, because I was just, like, I'm probably not gonna know these people, and I definitely told one group once that the song Wonderwall was about me. <laughs> <laughs> and now for Wonderwall, she pulls out her acoustic guitar! Right. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, new student orientation group. <laughs> I kind of dig that. I think I think I also was like, oh, you know, and people were like, really? And I was like, no. <laughs> and so, yeah, look, we're all for lying in the right situation. <laughs> Do you like movies? The actor isn't that person. They're just pretending to be them. They're lying to your right. face. It's a lie. Or, you know, little lies. Occasionally someone will be like, I don't know, ask me like, yeah, have you tried this before? And I'll just be like, yep. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you anymore. You know, Lacey? Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. So, like, look, look, I understand. We all have a gray relationship with the truth. No one 100% always tells the truth all the time. Yeah. But this isn't just excessive. This is grotesque. And predatory. Like, really, really predatory. This is horrible. So once they find out that Tanya is not who she claims to be, (laughs) because... Uh, the New York Times ends up running a couple articles at the end of September in 2007. So they did have like a little bit of tact to like wait until after September 11th because you don't want to taint the memory of what happened and the people sure. who did lose their, lose their lives and those who sacrificed by being, and by the way, this one's a liar! Right, yeah, you want to give people their time for mourning. Yeah, and you can actually find these articles. They're still posted uh, online. And so once word was out that Tanya wasn't who she said she was, she's kicked out of the network, disappears. Disappears! Dun, dun, dun! So once everyone found out what she was doing, they did try to see if there was any legal action they could push against her. Like, they're like, can we, like, file a lawsuit? Can we sue her or anything? And unfortunately, she didn't do anything criminally prosecutable. I was wondering if she, like, ever received any monetary benefits or anything like that that would she be trackable. Mm. And that was the thing is she, it was a 100% nonprofit. All the money did go to the victims and she was actually able to pay for her lifestyle because she came from a wealthy Spanish family. She just did it for the applause. Yeah, she did it entirely for the attention. Ugh. So I'm sure that if she were to stay in the United States for like any significant amount of time, she could be sued just for uh, the trauma that she's instilled on people. Yeah. But in February of 2008, after she disappeared into the night, (laughs) the Survivors Network received an email that Tanya Head had committed suicide. Hmm. Doubtful. So, in 2014... (laughs) Yeah, she loves herself too much. I'm sorry, it was uh, September 14th of uh, 2011. All right. A video surfaced in New York of a woman who looks suspiciously like Tanya, Mm -hmm. and a woman who looks suspiciously like Tanya's mom. Huh. And you can actually see this clip online, and it's 100% her. And actually, I think it was uh, one of the co-authors of that book that I mentioned earlier who took the video footage... And I think someone told him, like, I think there's been a Tanya Head sighting. And he was just like, ring out the camera phone. Nice. And in this brief footage, you see the camera person approaching her. 
she looks up, she realizes what's happening, and she kind of like puts up her hand to be like, no, no, no recording, no pictures, nothing. And that's kind of where it ends. Oh, brother. <laughs> so, you'll like this too. So then, that was uh, September 14th of 2011. Mm -hmm. In July of 2012, Tanya was actually working at an insurance firm in Barcelona. And once her uh, company found out about her fraudulent life in New York... They fired her. Good! I don't know where she is today. Um, I don't care where she is today. She can go fuck herself. She can't be trusted. Uh, Tanya deeply wounded the trust of everyone in Survivor's network. Her former friend Linda says that she actually misses the Tanya that she thought she knew. T uh, and actually, here's one of the sad things. In uh, the documentary, The Woman Who Wasn't There, Linda says that when she met Tanya because she was so surprisingly optimistic and positive and she was such a go-getter for the network, she thought Tanya was a gift from God. And she thought that God had spared Tanya on 9-11 so she could be there for them. And that's what really restored her hope during her healing process. I'm so sorry to tell you, she's a gift from Satan. <laughs> Lucifer was an angel. <laughs> was. <laughs> Every time he says, Sky's my angel, I'm like, yeah, so was Lucifer. Your daughter clawed my face. Got my eye on you. I do love her, though. Sure. She, she scares just, the shit out of me. Yeah, but. she just can't be trusted. Yeah, as you saw from the picture I sent you last week. God. She ate another can yesterday. Uh, what is it? Her with the, I like, don't aluminum. know. She's a goat. She's, I don't understand. All right, her. I all right. I love her, but she scares me. But, I mean, for Linda, this was her lifeline that she hung on to after September 11th. And, and it was all a lie! She says, you know, she misses the Tanya she thought she knew. Because they were best friends. She's like, she missed how they were before she knew the truth. And she's like, this is the thing that you took from me. You took away my belief that there was a God looking out for us. Because I saw you as this sign. Oh. So, I, I feel terrible for... I feel terrible for all of them, mostly Linda. Sure. Survivors Brendan and Jerry both wish the group had expressed their concerns amongst themselves earlier because when they started speaking after they found out, they found out that she was telling everyone a little bit something different. So everybody kind of knew their own version of the story. So if they had just talked to each other. And the thing is, her lie, it was so great, but nobody wanted to question her because you don't want to offend a survivor. Right. Even Jerry said, you know, I kept thinking, is she one of these people that just never tells the truth? And then he was like, but I mean, I, I shouldn't be thinking this. It's a horrible thing to think. And then I was like, but why am I thinking this? Mm. But he was later asked why more people didn't question her and why more people didn't express their concerns to one another. And this is a sad thing. Jerry simply replied, it would have been cruel of us. Ugh, damn. And that is the story of Tanya Head walking pile of trash. Yeah, I gotta say my lie Tanya cup is completely empty from that story. <laughs> if I weren't telling the story, mine would be gone. Yeah, I, I believe that. <laughs> just, Jesus Christ. Just, um, yeah, I, uh, fuck her and, uh, the imaginary horse she rode in on. Yeah, I think, um, after my episodes, we should probably, like, end with something happy. <laughs> <laughs> Because, let's see, what have I done? I have done The Satanic Panic. I've done Tanya Head. I've done Kathy Sesnick. I... Uh, Georgia Guidestones. That was relatively That was light. fun. That one was a fun one. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Pepcon was kind of fun. Yeah. There were still two deaths. Two deaths, but not as many as other things you've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's 
the scale it's already. So terrible. God, uh, I actually got sweaty. I've been like wearing this sweatshirt. I'm really gross, and I've been wearing this sweatshirt since like yesterday afternoon. And I like got sweaty now talking about this as we were like talking worry, about. I'll, I'll put filters on your picture before <laughs> I put them online, <laughs> and I'll send them to you first, so you can God. decide which ones you like. Um, so uh, on a fun side, because uh, I feel like I need some fun in my life right now. Because I'll I'll talk to the listeners about it maybe a little bit later on. But I've I've had a really really bad week. Sure. Yes. Um. Today. While I was at my desk at work listening to one of our old episodes and being like, oh my god, I knew nothing about audio engineering when this episode, when this whole thing started. And I still don't. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about like what our sign off should be. Because all we really say is, oh yeah, and I guess uh, cheers or stay cracked or something. Uh So I'm trying to think of what is a good sign off. And like if anyone out there has any suggestions, I'm all ears. Like uh, I was... Thinking like, uh, remember to keep on your tinfoil hats and not trust anyone or something. I like stay cracked. Uh, maybe like add and something, but I think stay cracked is awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So we'll keep stay I think cracked. That's very on brand. Uh, and don't get murdered. No. 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 That's already been done. <laughs> Damn it, oh, man. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Stay cracked and remember to send us your tails, but not your cocks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. I don't mean pictures of your ass. I mean like your stories. (laughs) Maybe not that. (laughs) I'm saying no cocks. That's what I like. Don't send them. Uh, Yeah, we can pray on it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, until we figure out uh, and what, until next time, stay cracked and cheers. Cheers. Kind of like stay cracked. Cheers. I'll see if anything rises to the surface, but I like that. It's just something that I I don't want to share with anyone. I've just kind of been keeping it to myself. It's it's a secret that you carry with you. It's it's a secret Secret that you you carry carry with you. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening to it. It really helps us out and allows us to provide more content for you. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Crackpot Hour. On Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest, we're Crackpot Cocktail Hour. And our website is crackpotcocktailhour.com, where you can find our sources for every episode, pictures, and you can email us from there if you'd like as well. Or you can email us crackpotcocktailhour at gmail.com. <laughs>